ReachMD now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. And today on this show, we're talking about practically everything. So listen up, or you're going to miss everything that we're talking about. Everything. Case in point, how to get free information about everything and clinical trials for Alzheimer's patients. If you're in medicine and if you see adults, then you're definitely confronting Alzheimer's disease frequently. I see adults. But did you know that there are more than 100 promising clinical trials in the U.S. that are enrolling Alzheimer's patients right now? Dr. Shelley Williams from the Alzheimer's Association knows how to match your patients to important clinical trials happening near you. And we'll be talking with her about this unique service called Trial Match later in the show. And since we're thinking big, we'll also share the results of the 22nd Annual American Health Ranking Survey. If you'd like to find out which state is the healthiest in the nation and which is the bottom of the list and how both got there, Dr. Reed Tuxen, Chief of Medical Affairs for United Health Group, has the latest scoop on this year's survey including a few surprises, so stay tuned. This is fascinating it information. Is. And while surveys are great for labeling the best of the best and are, the worst of the worst... We are the best, Matt. And we're also the worst. We here at Second Opinion Live go that extra mile to bring you the best of the worst. That's right. It's time once again to share the notable winners from Harvard's annual Ig Nobel Awards, celebrating research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. All of this and much more on this edition of Second Opinion Live. All right, but first... Let's look at some curious medical headlines in the news. And what's more curious, curious, than smartphone-friendly prosthetic limbs, I ask you? Nothing. We well know that smartphones are practically ubiquitous around the world. Grandparents have them. Toddlers even have them, scarily enough. But one man in Great Britain with special needs decided he was just tired of making do with one hand. Born without a left arm and living with a prosthesis for 50 years, Trevor Perdue of Somerset, England, started inquiring with cellular companies about creating a special phone built into the prosthetic arm itself. He asked communications giant Apple. They said no. Big surprise there, right, Michael? He has an iPhone. But Nokia did take on the challenge and developed a prototype in five weeks. Says Mr. Perdue, the phone slots smoothly and securely within the limb and is easily removable. He can take calls just by holding his arm up to his ear or by setting his arm to speakerphone, as it were. So I'm just going to call it speaker arm from now on. That brings a whole new meaning to talk to the hand. It really does. So it's only a matter of time before we start implanting phones in our arms. I'm going to do it right now with my phone. <laughs> Leave that project to Apple. Fine. My arm's buzzing just thinking about it. I should probably get that checked out, though. I would yeah, think. probably. All right. Speaking of <laughs> smartphones, here's some news that won't surprise anyone except maybe you, Matt. Mm -hmm. But it's good to know where we're headed. More and more docs are turning to smartphones for medical decision support, but younger medical professionals are the ones leading the charge. A new study by the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education says that while most of us, say between 75 and 90% of physicians have smartphones, younger doctors use them for clinical phones a lot more than doctors who have been in practice for a while. Mm. We're talking 70% of residents compared to only 40% of physicians who've been in practice 15 years or more. And what apps are the residents most frequently using, you may ask? I do ask. All right, drug, <laughs> drug guides top the chart 79%, followed by medical calculators, coding, and billing apps. And pregnancy wheel. A pregnancy wheel. What's yeah. that? But the study, <laughs> you wouldn't stu- even know. The study also indicates that residents still don't feel secure in the quality of clinical information provided by current apps. So even our budding youths in trading have high standards is what you're telling me. 
It sounds like it's all about quality clinical info at your fingertips. Or embedded in your arm, if that's what works for you. Ah, touche, good point. All right, last but not least, a story about a mirror mirror on the wall and who's got the fairest heart rate of them all. That is about the most confusing <laughs> lead-in I've ever heard from you, Matt. And you're welcome. Now, shut I'm up. lost. Shut up. I'm talking about a recent invention named one of the best of the year by Popular Science Magazine. It's a wall-mounted mirror that can accurately measure your heart rate. Uh, like you, like I need or you need another reason to <laughs> stare at ourselves in the mirror all day. I know that's what you do after you leave It's here. not that we're vain, Michael. It's just that we're facially gifted. Anyway, <laughs> the invention by MIT grad student Ming Zirpo uses a webcam that has been configured behind a mirror to pick up small changes in reflected light from your face. Turns out blood absorbs light, so when more of it travels through the vessels of your face, less of the light hitting your skin is reflected. Now, the webcam then picks up those small fluctuations, and a program translates the data into your heart rate reading. It's that simple. Now, the inventor is aiming to add respiratory rates in O2 sats soon, but you can already imagine how no-touch vitals would help in special cases. Um, I'm thinking treating severe burn victims, for example. Or just helping anyone monitor their own well-being. This is all about moving toward full wellness checks from the comfort of your own bathroom. That is the goal for us all. all right. I'm going to live in my bathroom from now on. <laughs> I already do. Just try not to blush anymore when you look at yourself, Michael, because hey. that'll mess up the reading. Hey, don't hate me, Matt, because I'm better looking than you. <laughs> I kind of do hate you for that. All right, it's now time to turn to our first guest. For 22 years, United Health Group and the United Health Foundation have been surveying the United States, and releasing its annual survey of which states in the U.S. are most and least healthiest. The Chief of Medical Affairs for United Health Group and United Health Foundation board member Dr. Reed Tuxen spoke on Second Opinion to reveal the results and give us some context here. Dr. Tuxen, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you and to try to get this important health message out to all of your listeners. Absolutely. So why don't we get our feet wet here? Why invest in doing these health surveys every year? I mean, what's in it for you guys? Really, the point is, is that we at United Health Foundation, along with our co-partners in this effort, the American Public Health Association and the Partnership for Prevention, have a passion for improving the health of America and of our nation's people. We are doing this because we understand and we're trying to make sure that all American communities, states, and family households understand that health is, first of all, important and that it is a result of a comprehensive array of phenomenon that mean that we must be attentive to a variety of things if we are to be achieving the optimal health uh, that each of us really should and want to enjoy. And we do this also because it's important to indicate how well we are doing so that we will know what things we need to correct, what things we can improve on, and also to know whether or not we are in trouble and whether or not we are making progress. Well, why don't we recap for a second here? I mean, I understand that last year's survey highlighted a trend in this country that I have to assume that most docs have noticed by now, and that is excellence at treating chronic diseases and a miserable failure at modifying risk factors for those same diseases. What can you tell us about that? Well, that is exactly the challenge that we have. I think that most physicians should be aware that what we have is we are unleashing a tsunami of preventable chronic illness that is washing into a medical care delivery system that performs uh, well in terms of managing those problems, but is increasingly unaffordable for anyone. 
and that presents, therefore, significant challenges going forward. We see this most precisely, for example, in the risk factors, for example, for cardiovascular disease. We spend $500 billion a year, direct and indirect costs, in managing cardiovascular disease, and cardiac mortality rates are down, myocardial infarct uh, survivability is up, and so people are living quite long with these conditions. The unfortunate phenomenon that we observe every year is that the fundamental risk factors for cardiovascular disease continue to deteriorate, and so we are making more and more people who will require more and more of these medical care assets. This is an incompatible relationship and one that is, quite frankly, not only is it not getting better, it's getting worse. Interesting. You know, I caught a glimpse of your 20-year synopsis last year when you labeled smoking as the greatest public health battle over the past two decades. So let's call it a sort of MVP candidate for our nation's health decline. Now, has that finding held up this year, or do we have another player on the list such as cardiovascular disease in general? What we find is, and it's sort of like the glass half empty and half full, tobacco is actually now starting to come down. So last year, 17.9% of the population was smoking tobacco, which was a slight decrease uh, from the year before. This year, that's gone from 17.9 to 17.3. So what that is saying is that we are actually after many, many years of making almost no progress in tobacco, starting to see some downtick. So the half full is we're making progress. The half empty is still 17.3% of the American people are still smoking tobacco. But what that also means is that obesity, which is continuing an extraordinarily unchecked climb, is now starting to take over. And so what we see in the population this year is we've moved from 26.9% of the American people being obese to 27.5. And for the first time, no state in the nation has less than 20% of its population obese. So I think probably I would say for the MVP candidate, tobacco and obesity are running neck and neck. Now, was that stat about obesity I and mean, the 20%, was that there last year or was that not observed then? We did not observe it last year, and so this is the first year that we have observed no state being 20%. And so what that sort of tells us is even the states that we consider in our rankings, you know, quote, the most healthy, which is really not all that relevant to us, every state has its own share of challenges and its own share of successes, whether you're number one or number 50. But at the end of the day, even our most healthiest states still have at least one in five of their population obese, and those numbers are moving up, not down. Now, let's get right into that because you mentioned the states, and I think what interests a lot of people here isn't just a general take-home message, but also this state-by-state comparison that you're drawing every year. Now, what's the intention in your case for parceling out health survey results state-by-state? What we are interested in is trying to give people information that is relevant to where they live and allowing the people who have to make community-based decisions, health policy decisions at a legislature level, people who run departments of public health, physicians, hospitals. We want people to have information that is relevant to where they live and and where they work. And so we take this state-by-state assessment to really try to zone in. It is our encouragement that people will use our state-based data and marry that with even more granular county-specific data from their local health department and give them even a greater sense of relationship to my neighborhood, my household, where I'm living. The other reason that we do it, quite frankly, is, is that it gives us a chance to have a public conversation with America on epidemiology. 
that is relevant to them. If you think about it, it is an amazing opportunity that we at United Health Foundation and American Public Health Association and Partnership for Prevention have, because almost no time in the American public discourse can you actually have a sustained and meaningful conversation on epidemiology. This format allows us to be able to do that. And we hope that physicians will take advantage of these opportunities to start to connect in into the public discourse that goes beyond the medical care suite and the operating theater to extend the physician's reach into having a conversation with the larger society, which is so determinate in terms of creating the etiology of disease or, and also affecting the natural history of disease once present. Well, you mentioned holding this sustained and meaningful conversation with the country. I assume that you guys used a number of measures. I'm looking at 22 separate measures that affect public health that you used to compile your data. What were some of those measures? Just to and, actually, and by the way, it's actually, I think, 23 measures, but you're still right on the beam in that the premise of your question is, is clearly accurate, that we use a variety of measures. They are in several domains. Number one, we look at things that have to do with the personal behaviors of the individual, smoking, obesity, alcohol use, and also, interestingly, high school graduation, because, of course, the literacy of the population is very intimate related to our overall health status. Secondly, we look at the community environment in which we live and in which we work, the crime statistics, the vital crime, occupational health, infectious disease rates, air pollution. And interestingly, we look at things like child poverty, because that has a great determinant on overall healthiness. And then we look at the decisions made by elected and public officials, the availability of health insurance, public health funding, immunization coverage within a community. And then we look at things that have to do with clinical care, preventable hospitalizations, the availability of primary care, early prenatal care for pregnant women. And then ultimately, we look at how all those roll up into health outcomes, the actual results of how all these factors come together, poor mental health days, poor physical health days, the infant mortality rate, diabetes, cardiovascular disease mortality, cancer mortality, and then finally premature death. So all of those together providing a fairly broad snapshot of what's happening in the states and then ultimately aggregated what's happening in America. So you've got all this data, most of it interconnected, some of it a little bit more autonomous. And I think the major question then emerges, where's the healthiest place to be this year? Well, the, the, I will continue to emphasize, as I did earlier in our conversation, that every state, no matter where it is in the rankings, has its share of challenges. And every state, no matter where it is in the rankings, has its share of successes. That being said, the, the healthiest state in the country this year was Vermont, Vermont followed was by prize. New Hampshire, Connecticut, <laughs> Hawaii, and then number five, Massachusetts. And because I know you're going to ask me, the states that are having the most difficult challenges at 46 was Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and the 50th least healthiest state was uh, Mississippi. Well, Dr. Tuxton, it's been a pleasure sizing up the country with you today. My thanks for uh, joining us on Second Opinion Live. And thank you, and it's a privilege to talk to your audience, and thanks to every one of them for the work that they do for their patients, for their states, and for our country. We really appreciate the dedicated efforts of America's physicians. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Glad to be here today. Now let's turn to our second guest today, who has some encouraging news for us about Alzheimer's disease. It may come as a surprise to many of our listeners that there are more than 100 clinical trials occurring right now 
in over 500 sites in the U.S. And the Alzheimer's Association has a free service, that's free, called Trial Match for you to explore for your patients. Here to discuss Trial Match at alz.org slash trial match is Dr. Shelley Williams, Assistant Professor of Geriatric Medicine at the University of Chicago Medical Center and a member of several committees with the Alzheimer's Association. Shelley, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Good morning, Michael and Matt. How are you both doing? Great. Good to have you. Good. Let's start broadly. Our first question, obviously, is going to be, what exactly is Trial Match and how do we use it for our patients? Wonderful. Trial Match is a one-of-a-kind web-based repository of clinical trials available to physicians, caregivers, as well as patients and families affected by this disease. It's sponsored by the Alzheimer's Association as a call to increase the available participants in research related to dementia. Okay. Now, how does this service, how does the trial match service compare to other clinical trial sites like clinicaltrials.org? Are there any advantages to your system? The big advantage to trial match is that it's user-friendly site that's available with web support as well as phone support to talk people through the clinical trials that are available. One of the other benefits of trial match is that it doesn't only list pharmacologic studies, but it also lists non-pharmacologic studies such as exercise related to dementia and even how the disease affects caregivers and caregiver stress. Well, this is inter- this, I think this is very interesting. I didn't know about it until now. And um, how, what type of publicity are you putting out there? Because Alzheimer's is a big problem, and everyone's worried about it. It touches almost everyone's life. Um, my father-in-law suffered from that before he passed away. So how can we help you spread this, or how can other physicians help you spread it? And what are you doing across the nation to, to spread this news? The big things across the nation are interviews like this, which we hope individuals will use to go on to the ALZ.org website under Trial Match, and they can find out more information about this. And then also, we have sought out physicians in the community, sent them information about the availability of Trial Match for their patients to refer them. And very often, we make it available to caregivers who enter into the Alzheimer's Association website that they know this is an available resource to find information about clinical trials available within their area. Why don't you give us some scope of the number of trials out there? We, we, we used the statistic. We put out there that there are over 100 trials going on and 500 sites around the country. Uh, it sounds like it, potentially somebody could find a trial near them no matter where they are in the country. Can you give us some sense of that? Is that is that a... False statement? Is that a leading statement? What do you think? That's correct. There's over 130 trials that are available. And even though trials are listed nationwide, the site actually tailors to what trials are available within your area as well as what's available nationwide. And for individuals who want to participate in nationwide trials, we have the availability of the web support or the phone support for them to be able to contact one of our representatives to help them in getting enrolled. So from where you're sitting, do you know whether there are trial sites that are more heavily concentrated in certain parts of the U.S.? I mean, is there, is there a good chance that just about anybody listening can find a trial site going on really close to them within, let's say, 100 miles? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. And the availability of the web-based support and phone-based support is really helpful in the fact that it helps to tailor what's closest to you. And if there are any available sites that are not closer to your venue but you're interested, they can help to link you whether or not that 
that particular trial is available to you. Well, Matt, if it was me, I'd want to go to Hawaii and you know go to trial there. That would be much more fun. <laughs> we should be doing the entire show for you. That's right. <laughs> so, so Shelley, let, let's say I create a patient profile mm-hmm. and it gets matched to a trial. Walk us through the, the process for people. How, how does this work? So once you've entered your data information, let's say you are a patient or a caregiver going onto the site, you enter your information into the database. Once your information is entered into the database, you can request to receive a web-based contact with one of the representatives, or you can do a phone-based contact. The phone-based contact is usually available at 808-272-3900, or through the web-based contact, there's a link under Trial Match where you can request to have one of our staff contact you to let you know what is available in your area and let you know how to enter into the study. Generally, they forward your information on to the clinical trial representative, and then they contact you to see whether or not your information is appropriate for entry into the trial, and then they go about the process of enrolling you if you're appropriate. And are you guys hitting your goals for numbers of caregivers, patients for that matter, accessing trial match? I mean, what kind, of, uh, what kind of numbers are we looking at right now for people who are accessing it currently? Well, currently we have about 10,000 people who have actually entered into the website and about 3,000 who have actually enrolled into active clinical trials. But this still is not enough individuals. We need more individuals to enter into clinical trials. This is the only way we're going to get answers about how to prevent this disease and how to improve quality of life and quantity of life for individuals affected by the disease. So what's your estimate of the number of people in America that are affected by Alzheimer's who could be using the service? Well, today we have 5.4 million Americans who are affected by Alzheimer's disease. And with the increasing number of geriatric individuals in our country, we're anticipating by the year 2050, we will have as many as 16 million Americans affected by this disease. And as you mentioned, it's not just a a disease of the individual. It also affects families. Well, all right, so we have this many people. What's the problem here? Why can't we? I mean, these trials are free, correct? You don't pay they for are. them. They're free. And, and sometimes you even get paid transportation and, and reimbursed exactly. for uh, support. So why can't we get millions of people on this website? What exactly is the barrier? Right. What's yeah. the barrier? What's happening here? Do you know? The biggest barriers are very often people feel as if, oh, I have dementia. There is nothing available. Sometimes there are physicians who don't know what trials are available. Sometimes um, there are patients who feel as if this is a study and this is something that may not be beneficial for me. I don't know if it will work. So it's really important that we get past many of those barriers by letting, number one, physicians know what's available. And the Alzheimer's Association has stepped up to this challenge by creating Trial Match and making it available to let them know what's available in their communities. And then another big barrier is really just changing patients and family members' perceptions of dementia and the fact that we are in a race to end Alzheimer's dementia, and it takes everyone participating. And research is one of the key ways that we're going to get to the answers of how do we prevent this and our next loved one. Or how do we improve the quality of life of those already affected by the disease? Right. If we don't study this, we're not going to beat it. 
exactly. Okay. Um, just to reiterate, you, do you need you don't need to be a medical professional to use this use Trial Match, correct? Anybody no, can go no. on there. Trial Match is available to physicians, other researchers. It's available to caregivers, even individuals affected by dementia. And the wonderful thing about using Trial Match is you have the availability of the phone as as well as web support where someone can talk you through if you're a family member and you're having difficulty putting in your information, or if you're a physician and you just want to know what's available to your patients, you can go in without creating a profile. So basically a lot of these trials, at what stage of Alzheimer's are you looking for patients or at all stages? Well, we're looking for patients at all stages, but we find that very often if we're able to get people earlier in disease or um, at stages where they're not considered with dementia, such as mild cognitive impairment or even healthy age match controls, this helps us to get more information about how do we prevent this disease. So we're looking for people who have the disease at all stages. Hopefully, we can get people in earlier, as well as age match healthy controls. Well, I'm age match and healthy and old. Do you all have a cookies at any of these sites? I'll go. Sure, we'll, we'll enroll you. <laughs> Michael <laughs> needs very few incentives. So that's right. Be part <laughs> of these. Cookie, I'll go. Has, has, you know, we're a small station that gets out to med- or a great station, but yeah. have, have any of the major media outlets picked this up? There have been. Um, we've gotten a lot of press, um, especially during our um, memory walk induction um, interviews. But we need more and more health professionals and individuals such as yourselves who are health professionals and within the media to get the word out. Okay, so Sanjay Gupta, yes. if you're listening, <laughs> take it over from here. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks so much for your time. We, uh, we, if there's anything that we missed, feel free to let us know. We've got about another minute. Is there any other messages that you want to impart to our audience? Well, I I think one of the things that's important is this is a disease that affects so many individuals. So knowing how to recognize the signs of dementia is really important. We all as physicians um, at different stages of our careers may not encounter individuals with this disease a lot. So the Alzheimer's Association website, ALZ.org, has the 10 warning signs available. And also, if you have loved ones who we identify with this this disease earlier, it allows us the opportunity to really allow them to be a participant in decision-making about their legal, financial, and care plans. And it also allows us to get them involved in clinical studies earlier if we're able to get to the disease diagnosis early. Dr. Shelley Williams, thank you so much for being a guest on Second Opinion Live. And listeners, remember there's a lot of research going on currently, and trials need patients. Check out alz.org slash trial match or call 800-272-3900. All right, before we wrap up today, let's take a few minutes in a grand spectacle that we like to do to recognize this year's notable award winners for research that made us laugh and then made us think. And made us cry that they spent money on it. Cry with laughter tears. I'm talking about the annual Ig Nobel Awards hosted by Harvard's Journal of Improbable Research. And this year, drumroll, the award in medicine goes to two teams of researchers who demonstrated opposite findings 
of an, an, a vital breakthrough, Matt. Vital. That people tend to make impulse decisions when they have a strong urge to urinate. You don't say. Yes, Team One's published paper in Psychological Science is titled Inhibitory Spillover. <laughs> Increased urination, your urgency facilitates impulse control in unrelated domains. Meanwhile, group number two's paper in the journal Neurology and Eurodynamics. There is a paper. There is. It's titled, The Effect of Acute Increase in Urge to Void on Cognitive Function in Healthy Adults. This is, this is an important problem as Alzheimer's. It's very important. And next in the field of biology, equally important, the Ig Nobel Prize goes to a research group that discovered how love can indeed flourish between organic and inorganic life. A species of beetle is now known to mate with an Australian beer bottle. I think that's just fantastic. The paper's called Beetles on the Bottle. Male buprestids mistake stubbies for females. What do the children look like? <laughs> I don't want to know. And this year's award for chemistry went to a research team from Japan for pioneering the wasabi alarm. Wasabi alarm! A household must-have. The team determined the ideal density of airborne wasabi, which for non-sushi eaters is a pungent horseradish, so as to awaken sleeping people in case of a fire or other emergency. I can't even get a over that. sushi emergency. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a sushi emergency at ReachMD. And finally, let's not forget the winner of the Ig Nobel Peace Prize... Mr. Arturas Zuokas, the mayor of Vilnius, Lithuania, for demonstrating that the problem of illegally parked luxury cars can easily be solved, quite simply, by running them over with an armored tank. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Why have we Let's not called this, this man and have him on the next show? <laughs> that is worthy of a peace prize. For more details, check out the Ig Nobel website at improbable.com. <laughs> And that's a wrap for today's edition of Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. You can download the audio podcast of this show, and you should, by visiting us at reachmd.com slash SOL. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Thanks for joining us today. Our love to the booth, love to Michael Greenberg. And remember, the next time you wake up to the smell of wasabi, get out of the house because it's probably on fire. I'll have an order of sushi, please. We'll see you all next time. The best way to stop Alzheimer's disease is by advancing research. Right now, there are hundreds of openings in clinical trials of promising Alzheimer's treatments, plus a variety of observational, lifestyle, caregiving, and other types of studies at more than 500 sites across America. It is likely that there is at least one Alzheimer's clinical study near your practice. A free service provided by the Alzheimer's Association called Trial Match can help you find out where these studies are and if your patients with Alzheimer's are eligible to participate. Learn more about Alzheimer's clinical trials by visiting alz.org slash trial match or by calling 800-272-3900. You can also tell your patients and their family members to visit Trial Match. Again, that's alz.org slash trial match or call 800-272-3900. Trial Match is a free service of the Alzheimer's Association, the leading voluntary health organization in Alzheimer's care, support, and research.